Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgin. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Cujo Virgil, and I'm very, very excited for our guest today. Our guest is an expert in industrial real estate. He went through a couple of cycles, but most notably the Great Recession, and he just has a ton of knowledge in the industrial real estate space. But before we get into the show, please, please, please rate and review the podcast. We've been getting so much good feedback about this podcast, and I really take the review seriously. So it really helps to get high quality guests like the one we have today and visibility on all podcast platforms. So our guest today is Joel Friedland. Now, Joel is the founder of Brit Properties, a boutique owner and operator of industrial real estate. And since 1989, Brit's Chicago-based team has acquired 95 industrial properties with an aggregate value of nearly $200 million. And through hands-on acquisition and skillful property management, Brit Properties strives to provide their pool of investors with consistent cash flow, appreciation and value, and straightforward communication. So, Joel, thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. It's great to be with you. Before we start, can I tell you a funny story? Absolutely. I know your story and I've enjoyed listening to you on your podcasts and as a guest on other podcasts. See that thing on the wall behind me? Yeah. So I went to the University of Michigan. So I was a Wolverine. And my wife <laughs> found that thing. If you look at it, I don't know if I can tilt, but that is a gate that somebody stole from Ohio State. Uh <laughs> Well, well, we have one thing in common. We hate Ohio State. So, yeah, well, they always, uh, you know, when I played at Maryland, they always, you know, they crushed us. So <laughs> yeah. it's not a fun time anytime I hear Ohio State. I've captured their gate. I have it right on my wall. <laughs> That's amazing. So, Joe, you know, you have a ton of experience in the real estate space. You know, give our audience a little bit about, you know, who you are and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I'm 63. And I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, a suburb called Highland Park. Unfortunately, that's where there was a shooting at the July 4th parade last year. So our town is a little more famous, infamous for a bad thing, but it's a wonderful place. Chicago, being a big city and being right in the center of the United States, is a great location for distribution and manufacturing. When I graduated from Michigan, I met this guy who was 63 years old, which is my age now. His name was Milton Podolsky, and he was the founder of a company that owned 84 industrial buildings, and he was looking for someone to do leasing. In 1981, interest rates were 17%. Ouch. And yet it was terrible. It was a really bad recession. I interviewed with him, and he said to me, what, kid, what would you do? to fill up my nine vacant buildings. I've got 84 buildings, but these are rough times. And I said, well, when I was a kid, I went door to door as a landscaping lawn cutting guy starting at age 14. And I knocked on doors and I had people hire me. 70 different families hired me to cut their lawn and trim their bushes and trees. 
I would just go door to door in an industrial park and I'd say to people, hey, you're a tenant here. We have a building down the street. Would you like to lease a new building? And he looks at me, he said, you would cold call door to door? I was 22. I said, yeah, who wouldn't? He said, nobody would. He said, you're hired. So <laughs> that's what I did. I went door to door in industrial parks. Literally, I'm not kidding about these numbers. I went to 30 or 40 places a day for a year. Wow. Stopping in, and it was very hard. I'd walk up into the front door of a company and there'd be a receptionist sitting there and I'd say, hey, I'm looking for the owner of the company to see if they might want to move down the street. I got kicked out of places, got the police called on me, uh, got attacked by a dog, a guy pulled a gun. I mean, all these things happened, but I ended up filling all nine of his vacant buildings in that first year. And as a broker, I also made 28 other brokerage deals as an industrial real estate agent. And I fell in love with the business. So I did that for about 10 years. I worked for this Milt and his two sons, uh, Steve and Randy. And Steve today is in his 70s, and he's still an investor of mine, and he's still my mentor. Wow. The grit behind that, right? I think a lot of people, especially, into, you know, door knocking is a different type of mentality to have. I think cold calling is one thing, but actually showing up in front of people's faces is totally different. Like, you know, where did that mindset come from? Well, I was motivated. I came from a family that was not a business family. My dad was a career counselor. And in fact, many of the people that came to see him were athletes who were leaving their fields. Uh, for example, hockey players, uh, football players, baseball players. And they'd come to him and they'd say, my time's up in the NHL. What do I do now? And so he would test them and interview them and figure out what they should do. So he was a professional psychologist. My mother was a therapist. She saw people who had marital problems and things like that. So they didn't know anything about business. They knew nothing. And one year, they, I was in high school. They went out of town. They went on a vacation. And I decided, we didn't have a lot of money. I decided I needed money as a kid. In my teenage years, I needed to buy a car. My parents couldn't buy me a car. So I went door to door and I got all these lawns. And I hired 60 high school friends of mine to cut lawns and edge lawns and pick weeds. And I learned that if you reach out, if you go out to where the business is, you can convince people, especially if you're friendly and you're open, to do something with you. They like it. They Like, who does that? So I, I would walk in and I'd meet these guys in their 50s and 60s who own companies we hit it off. We really got to know each other well. And by the way, those are the guys who became my investors years later. All those relationships from my 20s became guys who would write a check for 100000 or $250,000 when I was in my 30s. So it was all setting up for the future. And I didn't really know it at the time, but that's how it worked. That's amazing. So you, you pretty much had the entrepreneurial spirit you know, at a young age. It always sort of translates, right? That entrepreneurial spirit just never dies and never leaves, especially when it's being, you know, um, grown at a young age. So fast forward, you were in the brokerage space, right? You started in the brokerage space, essentially, and then you went off to form Brit Properties. Talk about maybe that transition and what made you want to jump off and essentially do your own thing 
to create the company to where it is today? So Steve Podolsky will listen to this podcast and he'll call me afterwards and say, yeah, I knew the story. I knew, I knew this is what, what happened. And I'll tell you what happened. Uh, and I'll keep it clean for Steve. I worked for Steve and his dad and his brother, and it was a family business. And I had been there for nine years and I realized that I was never going to be a member of their family. I worked really hard for them and I became very close with them. I love them. They're the greatest people, but I couldn't be an, an owner in a meaningful way. They offered me a 5% ownership in their business and I just needed to be more of an entrepreneur than that. You know, if you ever watch Shark Tank, they offer Mark Cuban 5%. He says, I don't even get up in the morning for 5%. 5%. <laughs> right? So I decided I had to go do my own thing. And I had already uh, gone to Milt, the dad. And I said to him earlier when I was working for him, I want to be an owner like you. I don't think you got wealthy being an industrial real estate broker. He said, kid, you know, he shows me his Rolex and he starts telling me about he's got a house in Florida that I knew about. and He's got a house in the city and a fancy building and in the suburbs. He says, you don't get all that from being an agent. He says, I own millions of square feet. And if you want to learn how to own property, I'm a syndicator. I'll be your first investor. I'll put in $300,000 if you find a good property. And I'll introduce you to my other investors, but you got to go get them. I'm not going to call them and tell them to invest. I'll give you the introduction, you go get them, and then you have to bring in your own people, not just mine. And when we put all that together, I'll show you how we buy a property together. And that's what I did. So I did my first one with Milt and his family, and I did my second one with them. And we added 25 or 30 investors just to the first two deals. And I said, I'm going to go do this on my own, guys. No offense, but I want to be on my own. And they were gracious. And we stayed friends and we stayed partners. Wow. So talk about that first deal. You know, maybe that was probably back in 1989. It was. Yeah. There's a town called Gurney, Illinois, which is a north suburb of Chicago. And I found a piece of property that I thought was a good deal. And I went out with Milt's money and with his the money from his friends. I also raised 20000 each from 20 people that I knew. So I raised $400,000 in chunks of 20. And the first question everybody asked me is, how much are you putting in? Because if you're not in, we don't want to be in. I said, I'll put in the same 20000 as all you guys. So we did that first deal and we immediately leased it. We got very lucky. We found an industrial company that manufactures equipment for babies, baby safety equipment like baby gates and when you have a little kid and you've got a little bassinet and things like that. And he was a distributor and a manufacturer of those kind of products. And we went out and did our second deal in a place called Aurora, Illinois, where it was uh, five times bigger in the investments instead of 20,000 each were a hundred thousand each. And we leased that building to Maytag, Maytag, the uh, washing machine and dryer company. Yeah, They used it as their parts warehouse. And then from there, I started putting together multiple deals a year. I put together 17 deals in one year. We bought 17 properties in one year. Wow. What I learned was they're not all good deals. You do have bad deals. And everything was great until 2008. And in 2008, 
I had 50 properties. I had 300 investors, millions of dollars of debt at seven banks, and everything went to crap. And I thought I had lost everybody's money. And I thought I was going to be like the Chicago Tribune is our paper. I thought it was, it was going to be a headline. Joel Friedland fails. You know, I thought I was just done. And you see that couch behind me underneath the Ohio yeah. State Gate? I was on the couch. I couldn't get off. I became depressed. I mean, I became like, I went to a very dark place because I thought I had just blown it. Coming out of that was extremely difficult. There were other cycles that I had been through, but nothing like this. And nothing where I had taken that much risk and that much debt. And what I learned from that experience was, let's do things safely in the future. I don't want to take the kind of risk I was taking. And I've become an extremist lately. I'm doing all cash deals with no mortgages, no bank, no mortgage. You know, you, you have these guys who are like these hot shots and they come on and they tell you, I'm going to show you how to do deals with no equity. I'm the opposite. I'm going to show you how to do, do deals with no debt, all equity. <laughs> Because banks don't have a sense of humor, and I never mm. want to be in a position where I'm on that couch and have to explain to an investor why they lost money with me. And that's what happened. It was like a reawakening, like a redemption from being in hell. It was really, really rough. So I've become a mentor to a bunch of people. And the thing that I stress the most when I mentor younger people and some older people, too, is let's do things where we can sleep at night and still make money and still have great relationships. And my goal really is, I think more than anything, good mental health for myself and my investors, just to lead a good life, to do things that are important, to really work toward our values. And my values are the relationships with my investors. I know everybody personally. I don't let anybody in. Unless we talk for at least an hour, I need to know their story, who their parents are, if they're alive, who their kids are, who their spouse is, what they did for a living. That to me is everything. And every investor that I have in my group, I could stop in and see them in whatever city they live in. And they'd be glad to say, hey, I would you like to sleep over tonight at our house. We have an extra room. Wow. That's what I call putting your investors first, especially in the world of private equity where your investors are essentially the lifeblood to some degree of your business, right? And there's a lot to worry about in in this space when you're trying to execute a business plan, whether you're, you're trying to acquire a property, maybe operate it the right way, handle the property management. The last thing that you want to focus on is that sink in your stomach of how does my investor feel? That is not, you know, it, anyone who is, you know, the who has a good heart, that has a good morals, you know, that feeling should be a natural feeling, don't you think? I would say that the reason that I get up in the morning and I feel good about my work is because my relationships are so solid. I can hold my head up. I have nothing to be ashamed of. I had such shame that I, I was dealing with internally. There's a woman who's a researcher named Brene Brown who's on a bunch of TED Talks and she's a writer and she's on TV talk shows. And her whole thing is about shame and how people need to talk about what has hurt them and be authentic in order to get past it. 
So when an investor comes in with me, I tell them my story. I tell them I went through hell and it's, it was difficult and I went through a depression. I had, I had to have medication. I had to see a doctor for it, a, a therapist. And I never want to go back there. And I don't want any of my investors to be in a position where I have to talk to them about why things are so bad. And especially today, because I think that there's a bubble. I think that we're in mm. an economic bubble. I think things are going to get rough. And I think real estate values may go down instead of going up. And I explain to people, if you come into an all cash deal and it goes down, you might lose a little bit on paper, but we don't have to sell it. The bank's not going to call us and say, hey, you got to look at the covenants in your loan document. Did you read that? Your rent's too low and you need to pay us off or pay us down. I've had that discussion. Workout people at banks are the worst. It's like when you were playing football, if there was anyone who just pissed you off, like they just came at you and it wasn't for fun, it's because they were like spiteful, just total assholes. It's like you don't want to deal with those people, right? You want to stay away from them. You know, if it, people play our game and they have relationships and at the end of the day, they shake hands and they smile and they say, you know, you were tough, but we did it. We made it happen. I don't want to walk away from someone and have them hate me and I hate them. That It makes no sense. So these relationships that we build, that I build, they have to be with the kind of people that share my values. And I want them to believe that, that I share their values. So we get to know each other that way. And that whole thing about shame, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to go back. I want to be really honest with people and say to them, if you're looking for someone who's promising you a 20% IRR, that's not me. 20% IRRs are fake. They only work if everything's going up. Yeah. That's my theory. It comes down to setting expectations with your investor too, right? I think there's a lot of uh, you know social media content out there and people out there that are blasting out returns. And, and it's easy for a lot of investors who don't have the sharp mind specifically in the, in the commercial real estate space to, to tweeze out and pick out, you know, what's in a pro forma, what's contributing to that rent growth. Why is that a 20% IRR? What's real and what's not. And so it's challenging for the folks who are actually doing things at a, at a high level, but also remaining conservative, maybe in their underwriting or, uh, you know, following uh, assumptions that are legitimate for the business plan. And that makes sense. Uh, you really have to kind of, you know, figure out your space in this crowded environment, right? It's all about just having those clean investor communications. Yeah. And, and I, I like a simple deal. I was listening to somebody on a podcast that's become one of my hobbies. When I work out now, I watch these YouTube podcasts and the guy was explaining his deal and it was so complicated that I didn't understand it. So I called him the next day and I said, can you send me your private placement memorandum? I want to read it. He said, are you thinking of investing? I said, well, I'm thinking I'm trying to figure out what you were talking about. I would consider investing, but I'd like to see it. So he has his assistant send me this thing, and it's 200 pages. And on the first page, I didn't understand what he was talking about. And I've written these things. I, I tell my lawyers how to write them, and then you know they give me legal advice. But I know every page and every word of my PPMs. And I said to this guy, I, said, I didn't understand anything at all on the first page. And I thumbed through it and I didn't understand anything at all. There were these terms I didn't get and projections and like hidden things. And we're going to double your money 
And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is not real. And so I, I decided, of course, not to invest in it. Then I, I told him I was going to send him my PPM for my deal. All the projections are on one page. There's not like pages and pages. And it says the rent, $200,000 a year. Expenses, $20,000 a year. Bottom line, $180,000 a year. That's it. <laughs> That's the whole thing. <laughs> and it's so simple that I don't need to try to figure out what I'm going to tell somebody. They can look at it and they call me. Investors look at my PPM and they call me and I say to them, ask me some tough questions. I, don't ask me the easy ones. And the toughest question that they always ask is, what's your succession plan? You know, you're the founder and you're the voice of the company. Mm. Let's say I invest with you. What if you get hit by a car? And my answer is, I have a plan. I've got a young guy who's 20 years younger than I am who knows everything about our portfolio. I have a son in the business who's backing him up. And then I've got people who are investors that are on what I call my advisory committee. And there's eight of them. And any one of them are smart enough real estate investors that if they had to take over, my family would trust them. Wow. That's a really important question. That yes. And most guys, I mean, when you're just starting out, when you're 30, no one's thinking about their succession plan when they're 30, but you need to because bad things can happen. Absolutely. That's the first toughest question. If someone doesn't ask me that question, I remind them that that's the toughest and most important question that they should ask. No, no, absolutely. I think there's a lot of a lot to comb in there, but I think the first thing that comes to mind is just the infrastructure that a lot of newer investors overlook that is required to keep these deals moving along, right? And, and a lot of times, you know, we don't have uh, you know a crystal ball on whether we're going to be here or not, or what something God forbid happens to us. But I think that the key point, uh, the key takeaway from what you you touched on was just focus on that infrastructure, right? Whether you're doing one deal, two deals, three deals, you know, you've done 10 deals, the infrastructure starts day one because you can't necessarily, you can't focus on deal two, three, four, and six without taking care of one first, right? And yeah. everything that comes behind that, that's very, very crucial for anyone who's getting into this this space. It is. I, I have a controller who handles all the financial stuff. He's been with me for 21 years and he knows everything backwards and forwards. So again, if something happened to me, he knows everything. And then he's got an assistant who's my brother. My brother is, uh, I don't think he'll mind me saying this, he's on the autism spectrum and his job is to do a lot of detail things and he's really good at it. He sends people their K-1s and he sends people their statements about what they own. He does our insurance filings and things like that. You got to have a back office. In the beginning, that's the other mistake. I hired the most incredible moron when I was when I was 29 years old. I hired someone to be the bookkeeper, and I didn't realize there was a big problem until I realized that checks were bouncing all over town because she couldn't keep the accounts straight from doing an overdraft. And I didn't make a good judgment when I hired her. And when I figured it out, I realized. I'm new at this. I just hired someone I liked as opposed to someone who was really competent. So now I've got this super competent team and you're totally right. Back office, infrastructure, without that, it can all go to hell. 100% agree. I want to touch on your your view on what's going on in, in the economy today. But before we move into that, 
for someone who is looking to get into the industrial space in 2023, you know, maybe what maybe markets should they be looking at or how do you identify what's a, you know, maybe a good deal, right? I know that's a, you know, very subjective question, but in the industrial space, yeah. How should newer investors be looking at industrial and maybe touch on the forecast for the positives in the industrial space, given the uh, e-commerce boom that we're seeing in, in today's environment? Okay. So we do work with what are called B and C industrial properties. The big Amazon warehouses and the big Target warehouses that you see on the side of the highways in every town, you've got them where you are. Uh, Baltimore's got many large warehouses. We don't do that. We, we work with the smaller buildings, usually under 100,000 square feet, usually older. And we have a lot of manufacturers in our buildings who make products. We've got people who make uh, safety products and we have people who make food products. We have a, a tenant that was on Shark Tank year one that makes protein bars. Uh, we had the company that made the croutons for McDonald's salads. I mean, just all kinds of little companies and large companies that need small buildings in a town. So Chicago has 1.3 billion square feet of industrial property. There's 20,000 companies, there's 8,000 single tenant buildings. And that's where we focus. We're like hyper-focused just on that. We know that market cold. And in every industrial market in the world and, and in this country and in North America, there are experts who know industrial like the back of their hand, who've been in the business for at least five years and make six-figure incomes representing landlords and tenants. And the really good ones belong to this organization. It's called Society of Industrial and Office Realtors. There's several thousand members. And if somebody wants to know about industrial, they need to find an SIOR in their town to mentor them and represent them. I trust every SIOR that I've ever met. And I've done maybe 700 deals with other SIORs in Chicago and in other places, including Baltimore, by the way. And the key to being successful, in my opinion, is finding an expert and latching onto that expert and convincing that person you can help them and they'll help you. And it's a mutual relationship. So that's really the key. It's mentorship and professional knowledgeable advisors. And I wouldn't even attempt to do an industrial deal in your town without calling, you know, I'd go to Maryland and there's a section, you know, Maryland and there's 16 brokers in Maryland who are industrial experts. That's who I would latch on to. And in Chicago, I'm an SIOR. I have a brother who's an SIOR. Uh, I have many people that, that I've taught the business to or here that are SIORs. And when you call one and you say, hey, it's Joel Friedland, SIOR in Chicago, they'll go, hey, what can I do for you? Like your best friends automatically and they trust you. So it's all about mentorship and going to the most knowledgeable people who know their market better than anybody. Makes total sense. Makes total sense. So when you're acquiring these industrial buildings, do you have any profile for the tenant per se, you know, maybe a credit rating type of tenant? You know, what what are you looking for in your in your acquisitions? So our average tenant does about $20 million worth of uh, revenue in whatever business they're in. Some are much smaller. They may be four or five million. They each occupy a freestanding building. They're the only tenant in the building. So it's almost it's like homes versus uh, multifamily. 
It's a single tenant. So if our building ever goes vacant, it's 100% vacant. So we like to make deals with companies that are long-term occupants. Our average tenant, because I've been doing this now for 40 years, our average tenant has stayed in our buildings for 18 years. So I want to find a tenant that's got machines and people. They bolt the machines into the ground. They bring the people there. They don't want to leave because getting new employees trained is really difficult. So they're called sticky tenants. So I want a sticky tenant. One of my favorites, this is a company, they make exhibits for children's museums all around the world. They can't move. They've got a workshop with these people who are craftsmen. They have multiple machines. They cut metal. They cut wood. They glue things together. It's this 24,000 foot shop. They're going nowhere. And I love them. It's, it's owned by a married, a divorced couple. They hate each other, but I like them both. <laughs> she gets a little mad when I'm nice to him. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, so sticky tenants makes sense, right? Because industrial, I mean, you can have one tenant that leases 100,000 square feet. And I'm maybe assuming that there's a longer horizon on your, um, you know, your, your, your whole period. You're looking at, you know, maybe a 10 year, 20 year whole period. You know, how do you, what do your investors kind of inspect when they're investing in one of these assets? This is going to sound crazy. Generational forever. Someone said to me this morning, did you see that that building in Elk Grove that we used to own just sold for a million five? I said, yeah, we sold it to that guy for $875,000 about seven years ago. I said, I wish we still owned it. We, we have 16 buildings. We've sold 80. I regret every one of those sales. Everyone. We should have kept every one of those buildings. We're into cash flow. We're into sending out distributions every quarter. That The end of the quarter is my favorite time of the year because we send ACHs to people. We like to get 7 or 8% returns, cash on cash. The question is, if you have a great property in a great location, how do you replace it when you sell it? What, what are you going to get that's better? It takes so long to find a good one and to build the relationship with the tenant and to understand the building and understand the roof and understand the problem with the water main outside. I mean, after all of this, to then sell it to somebody else, you know, why do it? And the answer is because we have fully vacant buildings when a tenant leaves. And if I get a buyer before I get a tenant, I'd rather probably sell it, even though I'll regret it later then potentially sit vacant for a year and have a bad deal. So every one of those 80 buildings that we've sold has been to somebody that's a user that needed the building for their business. It's like a tool for their business. So even though I say forever, the average hold period is 10 years. Makes sense. Makes sense. Because, yeah. I mean, no one likes vacancies, right? Even in the multifamily space, but that's totally different from the <laughs> industrial space, right? Yeah. Hey, listen up. If you're an employee, business owner, or professional athlete with money in the bank earning 0% return and you're thinking about passively investing in real estate, well, you need to check out our ultimate syndication guide for passive investors. This free guide absolutely covers everything you need to know about passively investing in real estate syndication or just real estate in general. If you want access to this valuable resource, go to MerlinAcquisitions.com slash Passive Guide to download the free syndication guide for passive investors. That's M-E-R-L-Y-N-N Acquisitions.com slash Passive Guide or head over to the show notes and click the link to download. Now let's get back to the show. 
So let's switch gears a little bit on these particular properties. You know, well, let's move to the economy side of things, right? You mentioned that you think that the economy is, you know, in the bubble. You know, why is that? Is it more so from a credit perspective? Is it interest rates? You know, what's your forecast on, on the economy in today's environment? I could go on forever on this. I have a favorite podcast, which is a guy who interviews economists several times a week. It's called Wealthion, W-E-A-L-T-H-I-O-N. The host is a fellow named Adam Taggart. I probably have sent him more people than he can imagine through just telling them about him. He interviews researchers and economists. And I've been studying this stuff since I went to Michigan. I, I took economics courses And what I learned is I went to Professor Holbrook's class at 10 o'clock in the morning, and he was an advisor to President Carter before I went to college. And then next I'd go to Professor Curtin's class, and he was an advisor to Reagan, you know, years ago. And the two of them would have exactly the opposite position on the economy. So I'd go to a 10 o'clock class, and Holbrook's talking about M2 and M1 and whatever all this stuff is that economists talk about and quantitative easing and tightening. And and I go to the next guy's class and he says the exact opposite thing. What I do know is that the United States has too much debt. I believe that the country is a Ponzi scheme. Janet Yellen, the treasury secretary, has said she's using extraordinary measures to keep the economy alive, which means they're paying people. I just bought some treasury bills today. They're paying 4.9% for 120 days. And you got to be crazy to have cash anywhere but in those. So people are taking money out of banks. There's going to be more bank trouble because why would you leave your money in the bank uninsured? If let's say you put a million in the bank, 250 is insured and the other 750,000 is at risk. If you put it in a T-bill, it's government backed. And instead of getting 0% return, you're getting a 5% return as of today. So there's going to be trouble. There's no way that with $31 trillion worth of national debt and a fight between the Republicans and the Democrats about raising the debt level, there's a debt ceiling right now, and there's a big fight about what to do about it. We're in a world of hurt as a country, and these interest rates are going to hurt commercial real estate. Maybe not industrial, because industrial is just so hot. I don't know. It's got to also have a pop. The bubble has to pop. It's been too good for too long. 15 years of good. In the last three years, industrial has gone up 35%, while office buildings have gone down 35%. But I believe that even industrial is going to hit a pop. And so I look at Warren Buffett and his sidekick, Charlie, and they're saying, we have a lot of cash. We're not in a hurry to buy stuff. We'd rather buy nothing than do a stupid deal. So right now, I'm not buying much because I can't find much that's any good. And I think the economy is going to be real ugly over the next six to eight months. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think it's a lot going on out there. It's a lot going on out there. And it's especially for you know investors who are maybe trying to find their way, trying to find a way to make deals work. It's a challenging time in the capital markets. And I think looking at it holistically from an economy perspective, I mean, you're right. We're in a bunch of debt. We're hearing a lot of things in the in the media about you know the U.S. is you know might not be the reserve currency, and I'm by no means you know an, an econ major, but as an investor, it would behoove you to look at things from a macro perspective and not just 
focus on something asset specific because it all to some degree is interconnected within each other. Would you agree? hundred percent. And that's why we're doing these all cash deals with no mortgages, because if you have a mortgage of 70% and the value of your property goes down 35%, let's say you buy a five cap property and it goes to like six and a half cap because that's what the economy does. Rates go up, cap rates go up. If you look at that, you're wiping out your equity. You're totally wiping it out. And these, these, uh, I was talking to you earlier about these workout people at banks. They are just nasty, awful people. The kind of people who go into being a cop or in the military because they want to kill people, those are the people that take jobs in the workout department at banks. They want to kill people. (laughs) I got this call from this lady. She said, we're going to take you down. We're going to make you bankrupt. We're taking your property. And it's like, be nice. Like, what did I do to you? So- all cash, no banks. That's my my mantra for the moment. But most people can't do that. They don't have two or 300 investors that they can call. So if you're going to borrow money, call me first, because you should read your loan document and make the seven changes that have to be made to the loan document. My banker said to me years ago, nobody reads this. I said, well, I read this. There's seven things in there that I can't live with. <laughs> it's like, call me. Call me before you borrow money. Let's figure out what your coverage is, what your risk is, what your downside is. And a lot of people do before they do deals, even if they're their own deals and not my deals. I'd say maybe every every week, three or four people who know me call and they say, I need you for a half hour. I want to run something by you. And the answer is just like with the SIRs, mentorship, expert advice is the answer to making the best decisions, in my opinion, in a good economy or a bad one. Absolutely. All great insights there. Mike, this has been a great conversation. I know that um, you're doing a lot in the real estate space. You have you know, a large portfolio. You have a ton of experience. I know you have a deal that you're working on right now, BC Rose. You know, Can you share a little bit about that deal? Maybe our audience are, are interested in following up with you and learning more about your company and potentially investing with you as well. It's hysterical. It's an incredibly fun deal. It's a building that is right next to O'Hare Airport in Chicago. And it's next to this fashion outlets mall and the fanciest hotels, but it's an industrial building. I bought it from the people who own the uh, duty-free shops in the airports. They're billionaires out of Miami and they got kicked out of O'Hare and they had this place where they kept the watches and the jewelry and all that stuff. This was their warehouse. They forgot that they owned it. They're so rich that they forgot. And I found the property just sort of looking around. And I said to them, would you like to sell? They said, we didn't even know we owned it. Yes, we will sell it. (laughs) So we bought it and I put it on the market for lease and we found a tenant. It's called Empire CLS and it's a limousine company that's going to store their very, very fancy cars in the building and have a place where their dispatchers work in the office. It's got this ramp you drive in and it's uh, just a warehouse where they're going to store these cars. And these folks are so amazing. The guy was on undercover boss. His name is David Seelinger season six. If you watch the show, you'll fall in love with this guy. He started out, he had a drug problem. Then he started driving a limo and he hired limo drivers. Now he's in 700 cities. He's exclusive with NetJets and with a bunch of hotels, and he just signed a lease. 
And it's an all-cash deal. We're raising uh, exactly a million dollars in increments starting at 25000 And the return is 7% the first year, cash on cash, no mortgage. And it goes up a little bit every year. It's a great little building. I smile every time I drive by it. That's, it sounds really, uh, really intriguing there, I think. You know, in, industrial is a great asset class, I think, from a risk aversion perspective. You know, once you lease it up with the right tenant, you know, you evaluate that tenant. Obviously, you're looking at the financials, the history of the tenant, the ability to further to pay rent. You know, it's one of those hot asset classes that a, a lot of people really don't know about. There's not a ton of education out there. So I'm glad that we were able to get you on the show and, you know, maybe you can serve as a mentor for people who are reaching out and trying to learn more about the industrial space as well. So, Joe, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. We've you've graced us with a ton of insight in the industrial real estate space, your background from landscaping to becoming a, a, a large owner operator of industrial real estate, your education on how you're able to just change your mindset when it comes to debt and reduce your risk within the uh, within your portfolio after the, you know, the last real estate recession, all of the things that I think our listeners would have a ton of value on this podcast. So if any of our listeners want to follow up with you, get in touch with you, invest with your company, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, Brit Properties, B-R-I-T, with one T, Properties, is our uh, website. Our website talks about the all-cash deals. It's got our portfolio of properties, what we own, and a bunch of uh, our own videos and our own resources and articles. We have an article called Why You Should Not Invest With Us. And I recommend that everybody reads that because it's got the 10 questions you should ask if you don't know what to ask before you invest in a real estate syndication. And I'd love to see your stuff. Will you send me what you're doing too? Absolutely. We'll get that to you. I understand you're, you've done a few deals uh, recently and are you looking for people? Yeah, absolutely. So our, our investor base is primarily, you know, professional athletes, busy professionals, W-2 earners who are looking for, you know, risk averse assets, um, some high net worth individuals as well. So our syndications are more primarily focused on uh, 506B transactions, both accredited and non-accredited investors. So i um, happy to talk offline about that. And I'm sure we'll, you know, our listeners will be seeing that uh, opportunity soon if they're in our investor portal. That would be great. Perfect. So, Joe, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. Let's go out there. Be great today. And remember that real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. So run your own race. Thanks again, Joe. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.